Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hey, it's Anna, and today we're bringing you a couple of stories about death, but they're not from our team. They're part of a pilot project that our colleagues here at WNYC Studios have been working on with comedian Chris Garcia. You may have heard Chris on Two Dope Queens or on This American Life. Chris's father died of Alzheimer's last year, and he's been working on this new pilot as he's been processing that death in the months since. It's a work in progress, but we're sharing it with you now because WNYC Studios wants your feedback as we explore new shows and new ideas. And obviously, you listen to Death, Sex, and Money, so we know you have great taste. So after you listen, head over to deathsexmoney.org slash pilot to tell us what you think. Here's Chris Garcia. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Hi. Parents or refugees or immigrants from Cuba. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, you know what? I think a lot of comics get on stage and they make fun of their immigrant parents, and I think those days are done. I think we have a better responsibility now. It's very disrespectful, it's very rude, it's also very unfair. My father doesn't have any recourse. My dad never once got on stage. And shit on me. <laughs> Not once did my dad get on stage. Hey, you guys! Anybody have an American born kid? Okay, I'm gonna talk about it. Oh, man. My son, Christian, he goes by Chris. Yeah, okay, I believe it, man. His name is Christian Andres Primitivo Garcia. But sure, call him Chris. Oh, yeah, very cute. Yep, that's me, Chris Garcia. 40 years old, although I look like a tired 36. I'm a comedian, and a lot of my material draws from my family, and especially from my dad, Andres Primitivo Garcia. Andre, for short. I put everything... I broke my back for this kid. I worked blue-collar jobs, graveyard shift to put him in a good school, escuela privada, private school. I encouraged him, Christian, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. This is America, the land of opportunity. You are a good person, you work hard, you can do forever you want. You can do forever you want. My dad grew up poor in Cuba and had big dreams for his American kids. He goes to UC Berkeley. One of the best public universities in the United States. And you want to know what he studied? Anybody want to take a gander? I want this motherfucker to study! He studied poetry! Are you telling me I float into shark-infested waters on a hubcap so this motherfucker can read haikus? My father never did that. People loved my dad. His infectious laugh, 
his great stories. He was so nice. Whenever he met one of my girlfriends, he'd extend his hand, give him a firm handshake, and he'd say, I'm Andres, a tus pies, which means I'm Andre, I serve at your feet. Just a real classy gentleman. Sometime in 2008, he started acting kind of weird. He repeated the same stories over and over again. He started to get irritable. He had mood swings. We just thought he was depressed like the way old guys get depressed when they first retire. We thought it was a phase. It turns out it was Alzheimer's. And if you know anything about the disease or anyone who's ever had it, you know how the story goes. It gets worse and worse. It never gets better. People with Alzheimer's, they sometimes get violent. In my dad's case... He started to punch strangers. He'd get afraid and confused, and he'd just lash out. After eight years, it finally killed my dad. It was February 5th, 2017. I miss him. There's so much we never got to talk about. I want to know about those years in prison. Is there a link between that time and the Alzheimer's that came later? I also want to know what it's like to have kids and be a dad. Because I want to have kids and be a dad. Here's a question. How do you stay married for 53 years? How do you get through the bad times? But my dad's not here. It's also been hard in terms of interacting with the living. A lot of people don't know how to talk to me about it. So they avoid it or things get awkward. I get it. What are you supposed to say? Hey, how are you doing with your dead dad stuff? You know? Then I have friends, most of them who are comedians, who have also lost their parents. And these are the people who have been sources of comfort to me. And we've helped each other through this. They just get it. It's almost like we have a dead parent society. I'm going to take those conversations into this podcast. Some of it's kind of awkward, some of it's funny, but it's all stuff that's comforted me and might help you. But in this first episode, it's really going to be about me and my dad and my mom. Okay, mi nombre es Ana. Eh, soy la mamá de the beautiful, handsome guy. <laughs> Su nombre es Chris. My mom's name's Anna. She was the love of my dad's life, high school sweethearts, married for 53 years, and she's the person who knew him best. She's about four foot eight. She's kind of like a chihuahua. She's very tiny and adorable, but she's got teeth and she's always up in my shit. She's also really up on pop culture. She loves the Cuban rapper Pitbull. Her favorite movies are Big Mama's House, Paul Blart Mall Cop, and... Uh, the Family... The Family, ¿cómo se llama? Motherfuckers. <laughs> Meet the Fockers. That's it. But most of all, she loves me. Todos quieren a Christian. Como dice, I love Raymond. Dice, I love Chris. <laughs> everybody loves Raymond and everybody loves Christian. Okay. When I visit her in Miami, she welcomes me in a way that's just so textbook old Cuban lady. It's like, hey, can you prove that you're Cuban real quick? <laughs> no problem. Here's a thousand mangoes. And 53, 54, 55, 56. It's been a tough year and a half for my mom. On top of losing my dad, she also lost both of her parents. She's a widow and an orphan all at once. She's been staying at her parents' house in Hialeah, just outside of Miami, getting it ready to put on the market. 
There are boxes everywhere. There's old pictures scattered all over the place. There's a rusty machete. <laughs> My mom put it there. <laughs> My mom put the machete there as uh, some sort of security device. And this is my grandpa's record collection. Oh, cool. Oh. Okay. Wow. 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 Classic. Yo creo que tenía Álvarez ahí, chequea. Álvarez Guerrero is like the famous Cuban comedian who I was raised on and kind of... Um, ¿Te acuerdas en casa, mami, como nosotros...? ¿Te acuerdas? No, yo un 31, esperaba el año siempre en casa, esperaba ponerlo a Álvarez Guerrero, esperaba a las 12 de la noche y era fan. We would listen to comedy records till midnight waiting for New Year's New Year. Eve and we'd sit and listen to these records and... Um, They're really funny. It's like inside Cuban jokes and some of them are street jokes and stuff, but he has over 40 albums. And as a kid, I think that's what, that was my first experience with stand-up was these records. La cabeza, quiero que me la entierren en la Sierra Maestra, que fue una de las mejores ideas que se me ocurrieron. Y le dice uno de los ayudantes, venga acá, comandante, y el culo donde se lo enterramos, que te ha cagado a todo el país. When Fidel dies, we're going to uh, bury his feet in Santiago or wherever he was born, because that's where he took his first steps, in Havana. That's where he had his greatest thoughts. But we're going to bury his ass because he shit all over the country. <laughs> But like it was like this type of like subversive, like, ooh, sick burn communism. <laughs> My dad had one dying wish, that we scatter his ashes off the coast of Cuba. My mom, she doesn't give a shit about dying wishes, because she pretty much vowed to never go back to Cuba ever again. Un país que era tan lindo, todo, y alegre a la gente, ahora todo ves que está la gente todo destruida, acabado. Los jóvenes parecen viejos, y es muy triste. Y entonces para ver a mi hermana así, destruida. ¿Tú viste a mi hermana? Luce más mayor que mi mamá. Viejita, viejita, pero... Horrible, muy, muy mal está mi hermana. Yeah. Um, we're talking about my, me visiting my aunt last year, saying her sister looks older than um, her mom did, and it's because, uh, like, the, the food, it's just the, the life in Cuba is so hard, and the, the food and the economy and the health care is um, difficult. So she's um, sick and not doing well. I brought her a bunch of supplies and sí, stuff, sí. and I brought her lo, lo pilas, y empezó a llorar. I brought her batteries, and she started crying because none of the clocks in the house were working, and they, they decided to use the, the batteries for the remote control. They're like, screw time. Like, this time doesn't exist here. We're just stuck, so who fucking cares what time it is? So my mom is offered an alternative to my dad's dying wish to scatter his ashes off the coast of Miami. Like, uh, I don't know, it's all the same ocean, just dump it over there. While we figure all this out, my dad's ashes currently reside in a box under my desk, like he's trying to stay safe during an earthquake. And there's something nice about having my dad around. When the Dodgers are in the World Series, I try to take him to the game. They said I couldn't bring the ashes, so I just took the box to a bar. 
I mean, I put it in a duffel bag and put a little Dodger hat on him. I even got him a beer. I drank it myself. But the last time I checked, he didn't want to spend his afterlife next to my surge protector. And honoring his last wishes is something that matters a lot to me. Maybe I didn't become an engineer like he wanted, and maybe it took me two years to learn how to tie my shoes, but at least I can follow one fucking direction and scatter his ashes off the coast of Cuba like he wanted. No, no, está bien, pero lo que papi quiere es que nosotros lo hicimos en, en, en las playas, de, no, cosa seca, pero de Cuba no dijo la cosa seca de seca. Miami. So he said he wanted this in Cuba. So yo creo que para respetar a papi, que lo digo, se, se quita. Y también para, para que tú veas tu mamá. He's like me. Él es llorón como yo. Él es llorón como yo. Y me gusta. Me gusta. Llora, llora. Translation, my kid's a crybaby, and I love it. Pero yo creo que sería muy especial a llevar a papi y dejarlo ahí. En el malecón o algo así, mamá. En el malecón no, porque no permite. ¿Tú crees que se lo devuelve? Hay gente pescando, capaz que lo cogen y se lo pesquen. No, la gente está loca ahora. I said that they should do it in the malecón. It's where they have their... Uh, no, el malecón, which... Yeah. Fishing, yeah. <laughs> malecón is like the famous castle that's on the coast right, or right there. Not the castle, but it's the, you know, it's in the bay, 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 bay right there in Havana. And she's like, no, so, so we'll, we'll put his ashes in there and someone will fish it out. Yeah, Are you kidding yeah. me? People are having sex in that water. We yeah. can't leave dad there. <laughs> Good idea, mom. My parents both grew up in a small neighborhood outside of the center of Havana called Lautong. They lived three houses down from each other, but my dad didn't notice my mom until they were teenagers. My mom wants listeners to know that he liked her legs. She has told me to include that in the script of this podcast twice now. They got married in 1964 and had my sister in 1965. They moved pretty fast. Fidel had come into power a few years earlier in 1959. Like a lot of Cubans, my parents were very excited about it at first. But over time, they felt like he wasn't delivering on his promise of equality for all. So my dad asked the government for permission to leave Cuba. And for that, he was sent to a labor camp for two years. He had to pull sugar cane with his bare hands. They put him in solitary confinement, they tortured him, and they starved him. ¿Y cómo lo viste cuando tú lo visitas? Muy mal, muy mal. Muy flaco. Mal. Flaco. ¿Qué flaco? flaco? ¿Cómo? Skinny, skinny, como el papi estaba. He was as skinny as he was at he Dice, was the end él, of his life. Él le hace cuenta. My mom visited my dad every week while he was detained. Cuando ya regresó a La Habana, llegó a la casa y tocó la puerta y la ahorita estaba chiquita, tenía como seis o siete o cinco años. Y no lo conoció y dijo la ahorita a, 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 a mí, Mami, Maya, hay un hombre, hay un señor en la puerta, está tocando, está preguntando. Y no lo conoció porque lo delgado que estaba. So, Papi siempre hacía el cuento ese. So when my, uh, when my dad finally got out of the sugarcane camp, um, he came back to my mom's house, my, their old house, and he knocked on the door and my sister saw him and was like, hey, mom, there's a man at the door. She, he, he was left so skinny and frail that she didn't even recognize him anymore. My father wasn't the same after he was released. 
he developed PTSD, and he sometimes had a bad temper. Once, during Christmas dinner, he told my brother-in-law he was going to shove a computer up his ass. Another time, when he was doing a renovation on the house, he got so frustrated and he completely freaked out and destroyed the laundry room with a hammer. And all of this was before he had Alzheimer's. At the same time, I saw him being so sweet to my mom. They held hands all the time, and when they watched TV, they'd cuddle on the couch. And he was a super macho guy, but he held her purse when they went out. Like, some guy would bump into him and be like, Hey, watch where you're going, man! And then just, like, turn and walk away with a teal purse on his arm. Even after he got sick, you could tell that he was still so indoor. One time when she was visiting him at his assisted living facility, he got, like, pretty handsy with her. And when he went in to kiss her, he stopped himself and he said, I don't know if I can do this. I have a wife and two kids. During his final days, we were all by his side. My sister, her kids, our spouses, my mom. In Super Bowl. Yeah. And so in the Super Bowl, it was Super Bowl Sunday. And, you, sentado y, mm-hmm. and we brought fried chicken. We like brought stuff mm-hmm. to have, but the Super Bowl wasn't playing. But my dad loved the Super Bowl and we're just all there. And my dad was hanging in there. And he thought, with that halftime, mommy, my mom was like, go see your wife. Go home. Like, you, we, we got it down. And I went home and I watched the, the rest of the Super Bowl and it was like the most amazing uh, comeback. That with a little, the, Patriots were down by like 30 some 30 points or 31 points. Yeah. I go see, and they win the mm-hmm. Super Bowl, best comeback of all time. And I'm like, you know, it's like exciting. It's best Super Bowl of all time. And then my mom calls me and it's like, uh, dad's dead. So, it fucked up the Super Bowl. No, but it's Super Bowl otra vez, you know? Y era tan sad. Y tu pulmonosita tan, tu se, dad, no, se pasó. Algo así, ya pasó. Y después, it was like a weird thing where Tom Brady's holding up the trophy and all this stuff. And ya se, papi se fue. Mo- papi se fue, that's what you said. Y el servicio, el servicio que tuvimos con papi, qué cosa más linda. Yeah. Los amigos tuyos. Yeah, we had a nice service and... I I really I remember when I quit the mom. I was like, I'm gonna go. This is gonna go in here, and this eulogy, I'm gonna crush this thing. I was like, I have given a million and toasts at weddings. I talk about my dad so much on stage. I'm gonna go up here, and I am just gonna give the talk of my life about how much my dad meant, and I ate it. <laughs> like I was so distracted by how much I ate it at, like because I just started crying and I lost my shit and I couldn't finish anything that during other people's eulogies I was thinking about if I can go back up again <laughs> like a comedian would after a bad set. And my sister who is not a public speaker goes up and she cleans up and I, it like drove me crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> that comedian drive and stage time never goes away even if, even at your own dad's funeral ¿Qué tú crees mami? Si yo, yo pienso esto alguna vez si tú tuviera cinco minutos con papi ¿Qué tú hacías con él? El amor Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh.
No, muy, cinco minutos muy poquito. No, no. She said, I asked her if she had five minutes with my father, what she would do. And she said, I'd make love, but five minutes isn't enough time. When I think about my parents' marriage, it just seems like this epic love story. I don't know how they stayed together through all the shit they went through, but I know they were best friends. She knows everything about him, and now I want to know everything too. There's this thing my dad used to say when I was a kid. He'd say, if you're going to do something, do it all through the way. All through the way. And I'm going to. That's Chris Garcia with his mom, Anna, talking about Chris's dad, Andres Primitivo Garcia, who died in February of last year. He was 75 years old. Today, August 8th, would have been Chris's parents' 54th wedding anniversary. After the break, a conversation between Chris and another comedian who lost a parent to Alzheimer's, Karen Kilgariff, who hosts the podcast My Favorite Murder. And a reminder, we want to know what you think about what you're hearing. Tell us at deathsexmoney.org slash pilot. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we want your feedback about a new pilot from our colleagues at WNYC Studios that's hosted by Chris Garcia. Chris has been grieving his dad for the past year, but he's also a comedian. And while he's been grieving, he's been talking to fellow funny people about this very unfunny thing. People like comedian Karen Kilgariff, who hosts the podcast My Favorite Murder. Well, Karen, we kind of have this crazy thing in common. Uh, both of our parents had Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, what was your mom's name? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, what was that like? <laughs> it was easy. It was it was kind of light. Um, went quickly. My mom's name was Pat Kilgariff. Pat was a head nurse at a psychiatric hospital before she got sick. Karen was 45 years old when her mom died. On My Favorite Murder, Karen talks a lot about death, but not about death in her own life. That's what Chris wanted to ask her about. Tell me about her before she got sick. What was she like? My mom was the person that if somebody was yelling in public, she would take care of it. She was a de-escalator. So it wasn't like she was confrontational. She just took care of things. She made things go away. And she made things stop being bad. She just always handled it. Was it difficult to see her not handle things once uh, dementia took hold? I mean, that was the horror of it is it was a different person so it was this it was a person she you know once she retired um my mom and my dad were happily married their whole lives and when she retired from work um she started 
kind of doing less and less. And then we could tell that it was because uh, her, you know, she was starting to forget things and starting to get uncomfortable and not trust herself. Because they know, part of them, they don't completely know, but part of them knows that something's going on. Yes, that something's wrong. And so they resort to something like my father would, um, he would start taking things apart. Instead of, like, going, like, he would, he stayed at home, yeah. but he would, like, take a door apart. But he's a mechanically-minded person yeah. that normally would do something like that. He just had to always tinker with things, and he just kept on tinkering. Oh, even to, like, I remember he started tinkering with silverware and making sure it was, like, bent properly. Like, he's doing all this weird stuff, but I was like, that's my dad knowing that's how his brain works, but he's trying to hide it either from us or he just doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, almost like they're they're using that as like a comfort, what they go to, where it's, this is the thing that soothes me. I know if I sweep up all the dog hair that's in this and then my kitchen floor is clean, I can feel better and I can calm down. But, of course, that wasn't it, you know, and it didn't work. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw her being off where you're like, whoa, this is not this is serious. This isn't my mom, 100 percent my mom anymore. Yeah. And it was really <laughs> It was uh, it was very scary, and it was also kind of like one of those, I can remember it like a movie in my head. Um, she used to always pick me up when I would fly up from L.A., and it was nighttime. And my dad would never do it if it was nighttime because he had bad night vision. Um, so she would always do it, and everything was normal, and we were driving home. And she did this thing where she took the exit before the exit to the San Rafael Bridge. And she did it in this way where all the, it looked like, it seemed like all of a sudden she was waking up. And then she just took this exit really fast. And it was the wrong exit. And all of a sudden we were off the freeway somewhere else. And I was like, what are you doing? And I, it hit me before I think I knew consciously what was really going on. It hit me like, it, like really emotionally and I got really mad at her for and then she's like I'm sorry I just didn't realize and it's like but we've taken this drive literally 150 times so there's no way you didn't and I was like she can't be in charge anymore like she can't she can't come pick me up anymore it was shocking because my mother was a medical professional my father was you know a first responder type yeah. it's like we all know you know and you've seen these signs. And it was the same thing of sunglasses in the freezer. That was one of the first. And it's bone chilling. It's like yeah. you've, you, any horror movie cannot, it pales in comparison to these little tiny th weird things where you're like, oh, this isn't my mom anymore. Yeah. Like, no one's holding down the fort. It's, it's, they, it's like watching someone slowly devolve like almost back into a child. Yeah. I had a friend who was like, how is everything with your mom? And I would always say, it's fine. It's, you know, it's my dad and my sister are there all the time. I just go and dip my toe in and it's not that hard for me. I would always kind of make these excuses because I had so much guilt. And this one time my friend asked me and I know that he meant he wasn't just like saying it and he wanted to know. And I went, you know what it's like? And said, it's like the movie Jaws, except for the shark, is like way far away and you just have to wait for the shark to come. So you know it's coming and you're just fucking treading water and you're freaked out and everything you see is making you flinch, but it's not there and it's not there. And after a while, you just want the fucking shark to come. After a while, you're rooting for the shark because you can't take 
the real-time, 24-7 horror show of life suspense anymore. You just want it to be over. You want because it's like stripped completely of their dignity, yeah. completely of all their faculties, and you're like, please, just make it stop. It's a cruel disease because there's no solution to it, and it'll drag on for 10, 15, I think the average, once you get it, I think the average lifespan is like 10 years. But sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 20. My mom's was 12. Yeah, it's yeah. such a cruel death. What was it like? Were there moments when, you know, the shark's coming, (laughs) but you're like, oh, there she is. That's my mom again. I mean, here's the worst one, and I'll definitely cry as I tell you this. My sister was putting her to bed one night, or like one evening, and she would do these weird things. It was the sundowning thing where she would get real anxious at the end of the, around seven, and she would always say she wanted to take a nap, and then you'd take her upstairs to take a nap, and then she'd start fighting you like a child that doesn't want to go to bed. So anyway, my sister was helping her get into bed, and then my mom was like, I don't want to go to bed, and doing this weird stuff, and my sister started crying and was like, screamed at her, said something mean, and my mom grabbed my sister's arm and looked her in the eye, and they're staring at each other, and she goes, you do know I love both of you, don't you? Oh my gosh. And she had been gone. She hadn't been coming back anymore. We were way past that point. So that, like, that idea that you could talk to any real part of my mom was so gone. And it was like she came back to make up for all the horrible, you know, like, she said shit. Like, she told everybody at Easter uh, that she never wanted to have kids. (laughs) Which (laughs) is so, it was like, as everyone's quietly talking in the kitchen, yeah. so there's like 30 people in the kitchen, and then it just, you know, the the 20 minutes conversational lull hits, and it gets a little bit quiet, and my, you hear my mom across the room, well, I never even wanted kids, and she's <laughs> talking to my three aunts, and all my aunts start talking at once, like they can cover it up, you yeah. know what I mean, like they're going to be able to mute what just happened, so there was like, there was so much shittiness that was unintentional and that was the disease and that was her her bad past, you know? It wasn't it wasn't really about us. It was about her kind of old damage. But then she still fucking broke through, you know, at the 11th hour just to grab my sister's arm. And it was like, my sister told me that and I, like, thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Um, are you and your sister, um, do you guys share stuff? Are you guys, do you guys share a lot emotionally? Have you yes. always? We talk to each other pretty much every day. Um and she's my best friend. And but during my mom being sick, there was there was just so much tension, and there's so much anxiety, and there was so much um, there was just so much to manage at one time. And as we lost my mom more and more, we would tell each other. Like the first time I had the experience where I was trying to put mom to bed, and she fought me, and I yelled at her, and then I scared her, and she kind of went like, I- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and apologized to me, and then I couldn't stop crying because it was so awful. I t- <laughs> this, is, this is like gallows humor, like crazy, but um, so one night my sister came to get me, and that had happened, and it was really bad, and I had to tell my sister because I felt like... I'd done that so badly, and it was like I yelled at our sick mom and, like, what's wrong with me? And my, my sister goes, are you fucking kidding me? I do it every time. And I was like, wait, what? And she goes, she drives you crazy. Of course you yell at her. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I felt I felt like I was, like, borderline elder abuse, how mad I got. Yeah. And she goes, yes, yeah, she makes you that mad. That's, that's what we're all doing all the time. And then I go, I said, 
I, in the middle of like really bad sobbing, I just go, I just want her to die. And I said it so dramatically of like, can you believe I mean saying this? And my sister goes, oh, please, you don't think I don't think about spiking her shit with Abilify every time I go over there? Because <laughs> remember that Abilify commercial where they were like, it could cause death in Alzheimer's patients? Yeah. It's like my sister had already made a plan of like how she could actually end this fucking horror show. And then we, in the middle of crying, she she said that. And then we both were laughing so hard where it's just like, this is a nightmare. We are <laughs> yeah, in a fucking yeah. nightmare. And we're just reacting like normal <laughs> fucked up people that have been thrown in a nightmare with no training or preparation or anything. And my mom and I didn't get along great um, in our previous relationship. So it wasn't like this thing where it was like the great, I mean, she was a great mom, but she and I had interpersonal problems that we never solved, that we never got a chance to solve. Um, So I was in therapy just dealing almost like with my therapist about the problems that I had with her because I knew I would never be able to deal with her uh, or talk to her about them or apologize or any of that. Uh, I think a lot of people talk about Alzheimer's and dealing it with with their parents from this, like, they were the best, and now it's so sad, and now they died, and it was all so great. But if you have any kind of a issue with that parent, it, like, triples the guilt. You know what I mean? There's there's already so much guilt, and then you have even more because you were like, I wasted time, and I was selfish, and they would not want us to be sitting here, you know, flogging ourselves for the failures of the relationship because that's every parent-child relationship. That's the definition of, you know, you don't, nobody gets out unscathed in a parent-child relationship and especially mother-daughter. It's like, it's tough. It's, It's really tough. And I know that she was so not about guilt. She was like, she would say it all the time in normal life where it'd be like, nope, don't even, that's not, that's not your problem or don't live like that. Like life is short and you have to be the happiest you can be all the time. So I, that's what I try to actually focus on. I just don't think I ever said those words out loud of like really having problems with her beforehand and having that just slide into sickness. So you can't go back and be like, mom, can we talk about that thing? Because I really think I was right. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, I, Funny thing, you know, my dad's kind of the cornerstone of my stand-up set, <laughs> and he always has. Like, <laughs> yes. even when I first started 13 years ago, I would talk about my dad. Of course. Do you, um, did you talk about your mom in your stand-up at all? You know what's funny? I tried to—so I didn't do stand-up from—I um, was the head writer at the Ellen DeGeneres show from 2003 to 2008, and I did not do stand-up comedy in that time. I tried to do it a couple times in the very beginning at Largo— And I went back there one time after one of the first visits home where there was moldy bread and there was, you know, sunglasses in the freezer and all the really upsetting things. And I tried to do a stand-up set about it. And it, my favorite joke that I wrote about it was, I was like, I, when I found the moldy bread, I was like, are you guys going to make food for ghosts? Because (laughs) everything in here is old and rotten. And it, was so quiet in that fucking room. You could have heard a pin drop. This The audience was horrified. It wasn't funny enough to where... It clearly wasn't processed. Yeah. 
And it was one of the worst sets I've ever had. And at the end, this was the thing. Greg Fitzsimmons used to, when he was on the show, he would always go last. And then he would do his whole set making fun of everybody else's set. Is yeah. one of my favorite things. And that night, he skipped me. And I was so angry at him, and I was so bummed out. And I was like, I did as bad as I thought I did. And I went up to him after the show, and I was like, you, was my set really that bad that you had to skip me? And he grabbed my arm and goes, it was so sad. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Like, then I just didn't—I was like, I don't even know where I am right now. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know why I'm saying it. I'm in a complete panic. And this isn't funny. Yeah. This is the breakdown of my family. So I just went to work and stopped performing. And basically for the next five years just was a TV producer and writer, essentially, and got out of it. And then when I left that show, I started doing all kinds of stuff again. I was doing stand-up and I was doing music and I was doing all kinds of things. And I actually wrote up a story version of that night that my mom took the wrong exit. Yeah. And it actually came out amazing where it was that kind of thing where I went, oh, this is, I need to express this sadness accurately and honestly and not try to put this veneer of comedy on it because that's not how I feel about it. Yeah. I don't think this is, like, I haven't thought this was funny ever and trying to force it through that. And that's also why when the first time I saw you do it, I adored it and admired it so much because it was simultaneously sincere and pained, but hilarious at the same time. Like you did the thing that I think I was either too close or I just didn't, I didn't give it the kind of real thought that it needed and worked it out. But it was the thing that I could not bring myself to do. That's Karen Kilgariff interviewed by comedian Chris Garcia. We really want to know what you think about what you've just heard. Go tell us at deathsexmoney.org slash pilot. And thank you. Along with Chris Garcia, our colleagues Joanna Solitaroff, Isaac Jones, Megan Kunain, Julia Longoria, Jenny Lawton, and Paula Schumann worked on this pilot. I'm Anna Sale, and in the next Death, Sex, and Money episode, I talk with the one and only Nick Offerman. But before then, don't forget, go to deathsexmoney.org slash pilot to tell us what you thought of this episode. <laughs>